shepherds brought tidings of the same. How that in Bethlehem was born the Son of God by name. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. All others that we face Old tidings of comfort and joy Comfort and joy Old tidings of comfort and joy Merry Christmas! Everybody stand
Good morning, Cap City. My name is Morgan, and I am lucky enough to be known as Doc's granddaughter around here. And I'm also lucky enough to be known as a child of God. Aren't you all happy about that? <laughs> I'm also lucky enough to know a God who sent his Holy Spirit and constantly reminds me of his grace every day. There was this guy named Paul who wrote a lot of the Bible, and in Galatians 3, he says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. And in the same way, even Abraham believed God. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Of the earth may pass away. 
to the setting sun, Father. We give you all glory and praise because of the promises that you make to us. The way that you start a covenant with us and you never, ever fail us. Thank you so much for being faithful. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Faithfulness of God. Isn't that flat out cool? Let me tell you guys, if he wasn't, you'd be hosed. You buy that? We're going to talk about that a lot this morning, but before I get there, um, if you don't raise your hand, perfectly fine. I mean, this is, this is not a good or bad. How many of you guys believe Capital City Christian is your church family? Go ahead and raise your hands real quick. I want to talk to family for a minute, okay? If you're not part of the family yet, that's cool. Sometimes families do things together that not everybody it's not their cup of tea, but we do it because it's a good thing together as a family. That's what this Jesus problem is all about. We throw a party for those in our town with disabilities. It's a big party, and it's a really big deal. It's a big deal to God, I think. I mean, this is about as pure a ministry as you can get. But in order to pull something like this, family needs to get engaged. Now, if you can't be there this, um, that evening because you've got something more important to do, then I understand completely. But if you can be there, we really need your help. It takes a boatload of volunteers, you know, just short somewhere of 200 people to pull this thing off. And it's a great evening as service to our God. We need about 100 more people to volunteer, okay? And so there's, I think there's a card right near you. Um, if you haven't signed up yet, I'm trying to guilt you into doing it. Okay, that's what I'm up here doing. I'm trying to guilt you into doing that thing. It's a good thing. You do some things just because they're right, not because necessarily they're your cup of tea, but they're right. They're good. And that's one of these things we're trying to do as a family. So whether you want to or not, if you are available, do it, and you probably will find out that it'll bless you as much as we try to bless those we're serving. Okay? Let's bow our heads together. God, it's by your grace that we're here. For that we are grateful. And now may the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts please you. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. amen. 
Okay, guys, I'm going to preach this sermon this morning in two parts. And just in case you get lost, which is possible, I'm going to give you the two big ideas first, okay? It's built on this. Bottom line, guys, it is not about you. It's not about how good you are or how bad you are. It's not about what you think of you. It's not about what other people think of you. It's about God. And here are the two big ideas. It is His grace that gets you in. And it is His grace that keeps you in. Now, this stuff is easy to say verbally. It is hard for us to get intellectually. And it's incredibly difficult for us to get here experientially. And it's huge, absolutely huge. It is His grace, not you, that gets you in. And it's His grace, not you, that keeps you in, which is why we are so grateful that God is faithful and keeps His promises. See, Ben and I are tracking this trail of grace that leads to Jesus. A whole lot of people think that in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant with God, it's all about rules and laws. In the New Testament, God finally discovered grace, right, with Jesus. But God is God. And God doesn't simply discover grace 2,000 years ago. It's been grace all along. So Ben talked about seeing grace in the creation story itself. Last week I talked about seeing grace in the fall of man, the Adam and Eve story, you know, when they ate the wrong fruit and got kicked out of the garden. We sinned. And God had a plan to fix what we broke. Because sin makes a mess. It did back then. It still does, guys. It's like this super virus that infects everything that it touches. We're good at it. We're good at sin, and it corrupts everything. Sin corrupts your relationship with God. It corrupts your relationship with each other. It even corrupts your relationship with this world that God has given us to tend for him. And God hates sin. You know why? Because sin corrupts. Sin corrupts what he loves. And God couldn't just let sin have its way to destroy what he loves. So he had to give us a chance. So instead of just turning his back and walking away, which he could have done, instead of just uncreating us and starting over again, which he could have done, he devised a plan that was so wild that no human could have thought it up and no human could have pulled it off. And God starts this macro plan of salvation with a guy named Abraham who was a pagan idolater from a pagan town called Ur, ancient city along the Euphrates River, not far from the Persian Gulf, what is now Iraq. In fact, I think my son Andy was there during the war. This Abraham was a weird guy to kick off this plan with because God often chooses the weird, thank God. He was not only a pagan, almost everybody was back then, but he was a really old man, almost as old as Vern, okay? (laughs) And he had a barren wife. And God says, I'm going to use you two to birth the people that I'm going to use to bless the whole world. Go figure. That's just weird. Well, this Abraham became one of the most well-known and most misunderstood people in all of history. Jews, Christians, Muslims, Abraham is one of the heroes. And according to legend, according to legend, a man of incredible faith, he served God with his reckless obedience, unswerving morality. He was about as close to God as a man could get. And it's no wonder, according to legend, why God chose Abraham. 
He was nearly a perfect man, according to legend. I've got a really old set of books on my shelf called The Legends of the Jews, published back in 1911, over 100 years old. All they do is tell the stories of some of the guys in the Bible that they considered superheroes, and they're wild stories. They love concocting stories about the guys in the Bible. So according to the legends, according to the myths, Abraham was a perfect man, a friend of God. In fact, the king in that day learned that this perfect man was going to be born, and he was so threatened that he had the midwives kill all of the male children, killed about 70,000 male babies trying to exterminate this guy who was coming. Kind of sounds like the Jesus story with Herod, right? But Abraham's mom hid her pregnancy. In fact, there's a wild story about the baby actually crawling up a rib cage so it couldn't be seen. Went to a cave to birth Abraham, left the baby in the care of angels. Abraham, the baby, actually suckled from the finger of Gabriel, the angel, and what he suckled was so potent that after 10 days he was walking around, going outside, looking at the sky, and concluding that there must just be one God, not idols, according to legends. Amazing guy. Eventually, when he, he went from there to declare war on idols, he'd go out and whack off the feet of idols, cut out their eyes, cut off their heads. In fact, he made so much trouble that the king decided to try to burn him alive in a furnace. Kind of sounds like Daniel, doesn't it? But whenever someone would try to grab him to throw him in the furnace, they would be consumed by fire. So they actually built a catapult to try to throw Abraham into the fire, right? But as they were putting him in the catapult, the wood that was burning actually started budding and becoming a garden, so they decided it wouldn't do any good to throw him into a garden, right? Great stories. They're fun. In war, Abraham would grow as tall and as strong as 70 men, so he was unstoppable. He was so good, he was so righteous, that no wonder he was picked. No wonder. In fact, you were good simply if you were a descendant of Abraham. If you were a child of Abraham, you're in, just because he's your great-great-great-great-grandpa, right? Abraham the superhero. Abraham the legend. Abraham the myth. Not Abraham the man. Abraham the man was like a lot of you guys, a lot like me. He did come to believe in God, and he was kind of faithful, and he did try to obey God most of the time, but he messed up a bunch. And the only thing that got Abraham in was grace. Instead of a perfect man, he was a trophy of God's scandalous grace, kind of like you and me. Here's what we really know about Abraham before he was called by God. This is all we know historically. You ready? Genesis says this guy named Terah was the father of three boys, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of a guy named Lot. We're going to see him later on in the Bible story. Abraham's wife was Sarai, going to come, become known as Sarah. Sarah was unable to become pregnant, had no kids, so one day Terah took his son Abraham, his daughter-in-law, Sarah, his grandson, Lot, moved away from Ur, down in the south, and headed for the land of Canaan, which was close to be Israel, right? But they stopped about halfway at a place called Haran and studied there. And Terah lived for 205 years. They did that back then while he was still in Haran. 
That's all we know. We don't know anything else about Abraham the man before he was called by God. An ordinary guy from an ordinary town called Ur. We do know that back then the people in that area worshipped about 3,600 gods. They talked about 60 times 60 gods, the perfect number of gods, with the big daddy of the gods being this guy called Enlil, who was the god of the air, the wind, and the storm. And we do know that in Abraham's town, Ur of Chaldees, there was this huge temple dedicated to the moon god, Nana. Isn't that cute? We have no historical evidence that the family of Abraham or that Abraham was anything but pagan until they were called by God. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. When for no reason other than grace, just grace, God says to Abraham, leave your native country, leave your relatives, leave your dad's family, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to make you, 70-year-old man with a barren wife, I'm going to make you guys into a great nation. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you famous. In fact, you're going to be a blessing to a whole lot of others. In fact, all of the families of the earth, you guys, are going to be blessed, he says, through you, Abraham. Now, guys, what I've just said about Abraham is offensive to a lot of people. It really is, seriously. Maybe to some of you guys. Because a whole lot of people think that if God picked Abraham, he had to have been special, right? After all, God helps those who help themselves. You've heard that. It's got to be in the Bible somewhere, right? So Abraham had to be extraordinarily special to have been chosen by God. Why else wouldn't have God, would God have chosen him? There's no hint of that all in the story. He was an ordinary twit, graced by God, kind of like you and me. Because God is like that. Because it's not about you. And then before Abraham ever had a chance to do anything good, God gives Abraham a promise. Go figure. He says, I'm going to give you a family of your own. I know you're old and your wife's barren. And I'm going to give you a land of your own. I know you're a nomad. And I'm going to use what I give you to grace the whole world for no other reason than the fact that God wanted to. How cool is that? Listen, Abraham did not have to earn God's grace. And there were no conditions he had to fulfill to keep God's grace. It wasn't a contract where God could back out if Abraham screwed up. There were no laws that Abraham had to abide by for God's promise to come true. In fact, the law of Moses didn't come for centuries. God simply asked him to receive his promise with faith. God says, trust me, which is hard to do. And for some wild reason, Abraham did trust God. And that's the trailhead of this trail of grace. That's kind of the backbone of the whole Bible story. My salvation, your salvation, rests on God's unyielding commitment to a promise he made to a pagan idolater. How cool is that? I know Abraham did some really cool things. 
And there were times when he showed an extraordinary trust in God. But there were also times in the Bible story when he was a stupid twit, like you guys, me. Twice, because he's a coward, he introduces his wife as his sister. Because apparently, even though she's old, she's so hot that he was afraid that they would kill him to get to her. So not once, but actually twice in the story, he allowed his wife to be pulled into the harem of a king to save his own rear end. Because Abraham didn't always trust God. And then God had made this promise that he and Sarah would have kids even though she was barren and he's old. Well, it wasn't happening fast enough, so Abraham tries to help God along by having sex with one of his wife's servants. Maybe God could use another woman's child to start this family God had promised. Didn't go well. Go figure. Who could have guessed? Bottom line, the grace of God was contingent, was not contingent on Abraham being a good guy, or he'd be in hell, and we'd be host. And I want you to hang on to that part of the story because we're going to get back to it in part two. But bottom line, have you ever been discouraged with your own disobedience? I have. Have you ever been discouraged by your own fickle faith? I have. Have you ever been discouraged by your own ongoing struggles with sin? Gluttony? Sexual sin? Greed? Envy, anger, laziness, pride. Guys, Abraham God gave, gave God plenty of reasons to yank back his grace. But God's grace was not contingent on anything Abraham did or didn't do. God was not looking for a way out. Every one of us gives God plenty of reasons to withdraw his offer of grace. And God is not looking for a way out with you because then it wouldn't be grace. In fact, in the New Testament, our covenant with God, Abraham is he's the perfect example, not of a life well lived, he's the perfect example of grace. Apostle Paul says that God justifies, he gifts righteousness to, not those who deserve it, but those who don't. And as proof, you know who his model is? Abraham. God gave uh, grace to someone who didn't deserve it, Paul says. Listen to what he says. He says, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of the Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he'd have something to boast about. But that's not God's way. For the scripture says, Abraham believed God, trusted God, and God counted him as righteous because of his trust. He was gifted with righteousness, not because he was good, but because he trusted God, the God who's good. And then Paul says, people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, not because of how good you are, but because you trust God who forgives sinners. Abraham does nothing to earn grace, or it wouldn't be grace God didn't choose Abraham. God didn't use Abraham because of anything Abraham had done or didn't do. He loved him. He chose him. He used him because that's who God is and that's what God does. Me too. It's the way God chooses and uses me 
you too. If we trust him. Do you trust him? In fact, God kind of seals the deal with one of the wildest scenes in the whole Bible. If you, if you look at the scene, it'll look flat out disgusting to you. And, but back then, it's kind of the way they sealed the deal. Genesis 15.1 opens up with God reaffirming his promise to Abraham. He says, don't be afraid. I've got your back, and you can't imagine how I'm going to bless you. And Abraham's like, I want to believe you, God, but my wife Sarah's kind of old. and She's never been able to have a kid. God took Abraham outside and told him to look up at the sky and says, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. In other words, you're going to have a boatload of them. And for some crazy reason, maybe because he was talking to God, think about that, guys, maybe because he's talking to God, and God is kind of like God, Abraham trusted him. Despite everything that he knew about the science of reproduction, and he knew enough, did you know that the only thing crazier than trusting God is not trusting God? And not because Abraham was such a good man, simply because he trusted God, God credited him with righteousness. God called him righteous, not because he was perfect, but because he trusted the perfect God. And right there is one of the biggest truths of Scripture. Our right standing with God does not come because we earn it somehow. Our right standing with God is grace to us when we trust Him. You get that? It's a hard truth. It's a crazy truth. The only thing crazier than that truth is to reject it because it's the only shot we've got. And then you go back to that scene. It's a wild scene. In fact, some of you guys think sometimes our worship is out of control. Trust me, if we did something like this on our stage, you'd fire us all, right? God told Abraham to gather a, a young heifer, a cow, a young goat, a young ram, and two birds. And he told Abraham to cut them all in half. Good job, bloody hard. And then he told him to lay half of the animals on the left and the other half of the animals on the right, form a path in between. Isn't that weird? But they did that kind of thing back then. And here's what Abraham expected to happen. He expected both of them, both God and he, God somehow, to walk that path between the animals. And in doing that, he'd promised to be faithful to God, and God would promise to keep his promises to Abraham. And it's kind of like this. If either one of us break these promises, may it happen to me as you've just done to these animals. Slice me in half right? Instead, when the sun went down, Abraham saw this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch pass between the carcasses. He didn't walk the path, just the smoke and the fire, the way God would show himself to Israel during the exodus, the light and the smoke. In other words, here it is, guys, God walked the path alone. It wasn't God helps those who help themselves. It was God will grace those who trust him. That's it. It's the definition of grace. It is not about you. It is not about you becoming good enough. It's not about you earning it because you can't. It's about God. And the only thing crazier than trusting God 
is not. Did you know that whether you have been pursuing God or not, God has been loving on you and choosing you, but he won't force you. Did you know that before you ever made any move towards him, he's already in front of you trying to draw you to him, but he won't force you. And did you know that God has made these amazing promises that he'll forgive you, he'll do life with you, he'll grant you eternal life if you trust him, but he won't force you. It's about grace, guys. And grace is, by definition, unconditional. And grace is, by definition, at least God's grace is, by definition, as big as God is, which is really, really big. So will you trust him? If you want to see the perfect illustration of grace, it's all around the room, sitting on these tables. So what we do every single week is to look at this grace where the perfect God-man, Jesus, died in our place because he'd rather go to hell without you in your place than go to heaven without you. He wants you. He loves you that much. This is grace. This is the way he made a way, a path back. This is where Abraham's trail is leading, right here to this table, where God took your place and paid for your sins. Isn't that cool? And every week we celebrate that. And right now we're going to take a break in this sermon. I've got a little bit left. We're going to take a break and we're just going to celebrate the grace of God. If you're a Jesus follower and you want to honor him, you're welcome at this table. Also, a couple other ways to respond to God. If this is your church family, no obligation if you're not, but there's an offering box on these tables. That's where we give our first part back to God. That is an act of worship. It's a way of telling God we recognize that he's first in everything. And it's our way of taking care of business as being part of the church. And then there's a white generous bucket, which is kind of weird here at Capital City. If you've got a dollar or two and you want to drop it in there, every dollar that goes in there, we use to just kind of love on people who are hurting. Sometimes people in this church family, sometimes people in our community, sometimes even further than that. That's where we just kind of love on people. Let's bow our heads together. Father, for your grace, we give you thanks. It's amazing. Father, sometimes we got all caught up because we just don't think we're worthy. Well, of course we're not. But you are. And we're worthy because you loved us. And if we trust you, we receive your forgiveness. We receive your hope. We begin that life that really matters. Thank you. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. You're welcome.
Like the wind, unseen but present, moving and felt. Like the seasons, changing at exactly the right time. Like the pull of gravity that keeps me firmly planted to the ground beneath my feet. Your faithfulness. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Immovable, unshakable. Your love is steadfast and you keep every one of your promises. You will never leave and you never forsake the ones you love. You finish everything you start and never have you spoken a word in vain. As undeniable as the sun, rising day in and day out without fail, and just as certain as the setting of that same sun, you are faithful. Okay, guys, this is part two. Here's good news for part two. It's only about half as long as the first part. Isn't that cool? And here's the other part about part two. It's going to be harder for you to accept than part one, especially if you're a Jesus follower. And I think the reason we don't accept it is the reason so many of us struggle as Jesus followers, and we doubt our life with God. This is important stuff, okay? Two big ideas, right? It's grace that gets you in. It's grace that keeps you in. Now, when we talk about becoming a Christian, becoming a Jesus follower, we talk about belief, repentance, confession, and baptism. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, our Savior and our Lord. We repent, and this is the part where I think a lot of us get messed up with we stand up before the people of God and we confess that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord now and we're baptized, symbolizing the death of the old and the raising of the new. It's this repentance part that messes so many of us up. For decades, I thought repentance meant a change of direction. That's how I defined it. Pursuing God now instead of pursuing sin. That's what I taught. And I was a prof I taught repentance is a change of direction. It's doing life God's way now. But here's what happens. As I struggled doing life God's way, as I struggled with sin, you begin to wonder whether you have actually repented. You still battle sin. Have I really repented? Did it take? And I've seen that in a whole lot of you guys. As you struggle with sin, it confuses you. Well, you wonder whether you're actually in because you can't quit wanting sin, doing sin, even though you hate it. 
I taught New Testament Greek for years. And I never really noticed for some stupid reason that the definition of repentance that I taught didn't match the definition of the word metanoia in Greek. Greek, the word metanoia literally means not a change of direction, but a change of mind. It's entirely different. It means that you recognize that God is God and you're not. It means that you don't get a vote on what's right and what's wrong. That's God's prerogative. It means that you recognize that Jesus is your Savior, but He's also your Lord. It means that when He says something is right, I buy it, whether I understand Him or not, whether I agree with Him or not. Repentance is knowing who you are and who God is. It's about being honest with who you are and what you've done and accepting God's assessment of you. It's a change of mind. It's agreeing with God. And as time goes on, God will change you because you can't change you. You're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, and you're not good enough to change you. God is. And he'll work on you if you let him. If you agree with God, you're going to let him change you, sometimes kicking and screaming because you know he's right. You see, grace doesn't just get you in. It's grace that keeps you in. Back in the 1500s, some of the Christian leaders back then wrote what is called the Heidelberg Catechism. Here's a piece of it. It says, only by true faith in Jesus Christ do you come to Jesus. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ do you stay in Jesus. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, actually, if you think about it, and even though I am still inclined towards evil, even though I'm a Jesus follower, without any deserving on my part, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Jesus as if I had never sinned or been a sinner, as if I'd been as perfectly obedient to Christ as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God through faith. All I have to do is trust Him. You see, grace isn't just how you get in, it's how you stay in. The Anglicans use a book called the Book of Common Prayer. Here's one of their prayers. It's a good one. Almighty Father, Father of the Lord, our God, all Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Still do which from time to time most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. This isn't a prayer for those who are not Christians yet. This is a prayer for us. It's the ongoing prayer of every true believer it is the definition of repentance, standing before God naked, honest, and loved, and trusting Him. Do you trust God? One guy put it like this. He says, the church, this church, looks exactly like it looked at the original crucifixion scene. God hung among thieves. We're the thieves part, right? It's always been that way. 
And guys, that's the story of the people of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both of them are about gracious. Read the book. The Bible doesn't whitewash its heroes. It's not like those legends of the Jews. It's a record of our deceit, our sexual immorality, our hypocrisy, our disobedience. It's a, it's a record of our sin and God's grace. That is Abraham's story. That's the story of Isaac, his son, Jacob, his grandson. It's the story of Joseph. It's the story of Moses and Joshua, Gideon, Samson, and David, the king. It's the story of the great prophets like Elijah, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. It's the story of every single one of the apostles, those 12 apostles that Jesus selected to launch his church. And it's my story, and it is your story. Some of us are kind of stupid sometimes, and we're kind of like, isn't God lucky to have someone like me on his team? Listen, guys, we bring nothing to the table when we come to Jesus. None of us. It's all grace. And our performance does not dictate God's love for us after we come to Jesus. It's still all grace. A lot of you guys know that you're saved by grace, but you kind of let works creep in after you're a Jesus follower. You think it starts to be about you. You think it's about you stopping your sinning. You think it's about you following the rules. You doing enough of the do's and not doing so many of the don'ts. Guys, we do not leave grace at the door after we enter the kingdom. It's not like we're telling God, thank you, God, but I'll take it from here. Some of us, if we have a bad day or we have a bad week or a bad season of life, it just kind of quenches our hope and we get all depressed. We get apathetic, disengaged. We're convinced that God is mad at us. So we try to dig down deeper maybe, try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We try to work harder and harder to harder to make God love us again. And it works for a while maybe until we fall again and we fail again. We sin again, sometimes the same old sin. We give in to our weakness, our addiction. We feel even more guilty this time, more depressed, so we'd maybe try harder, pray harder, read more Bible, give more money, do more church. We might even do Wednesdays, right? Until we sin again. And then there's fear and anxiety and depression and apathy and burnout. The painful cycle of those who try to keep God's approval by performance. Guys, God is not like us. And God's love is not like our pale imitations. Our love is fueled by conditions. I'll keep loving you as long as you keep being the kind of person I need you to be. God's love is fueled by who he is, not by who you are or what you do. He's God. And God gives you this invitation, will you trust me? And if you're his child, he keeps on asking, will you trust me? That's how you get in. That's how you stay in. Do you trust him? I know some of you guys trusted him once, but you're struggling now that his grace can be just as powerful as it was the day you were baptized. Just do it, guys. You don't have any other options. You're never going to make yourself the man or the woman that God meant you to be on your own. Trust him. He will fix you in his time if you let him. Listen, guys. If you can learn to trust him and embrace his grace, your fear will dissipate. 
Some of you guys, some of us, some of us Jesus followers, we just live in fear of God. I get it. It's our failure to trust him. Our failure to trust that God's grace can be that unconditional, that big, and that just stupid. And if you can learn to trust him and embrace his grace, you can actually start to love God back. A lot of us don't. We don't really love God. We love what he did for us, but we don't really love him. We fear him. But when you start to trust God, you can learn to love him. He deserves that. And if you can learn to trust him and embrace his grace, it'll change the way that you see the people you do life with. The people you do life with are so messed up and they are so precious to God, just like you are so precious to God. And if you learn to trust him and embrace his grace, it will put your quest to be good in its proper place. Of course we want to do life with God for God, God's way. Of course. Of course we want to sin less and do what is God honoring more. But works are a celebration of grace, not a means to it. The gratitude, not a way of earning grace. Here's what the book of Genesis says about Abraham when he was close to death. Abraham was now a very old man. The Lord had blessed him in every way. I hope I'm not quite as close to death as Abraham was, but I'm getting old. And God has blessed me in every way. I have a hard time seeing that sometimes, but it's true. How about you? I don't care how old you are. God has blessed you in every way. Do you believe that? Will you trust him? Let's pray together. Father, your grace is stunning. It's almost too good to believe. And yet not to believe it is just that crazy. Give us the ability to do life with you, your way. Give us the ability to keep trusting you. Thank you, Jesus. Guys, if any of you want to talk about making Jesus the Lord of your life, Ben sitting right down here, I'm going to sit right down here. Come down and talk during this next song. We'd love to talk to you. You want to make Capital City your church home for some reason? We'd love to have you. Just come down and talk to us and we'll get it done. Let's stand and praise our God.
You guys can have a seat real quick. I want to introduce you to some of my very first friends when I moved to Kentucky. This is Mark and Darlena Brown. They have Texas roots, so instantly we were close friends. Uh, she has connections to my preacher that I had growing up and his wife, which I just think is so very cool. Uh, these are great friends of mine, and they love this church, and they love what's going on, and they want to be a part of it, and that's really cool as well. So I'm going to ask you guys to the same thing that we do with everyone when we do this. This is the thing that binds us and unites us. This is the thing that we all agree upon that calls us or that makes us family. All right? So I want you to repeat after me. Okay? I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the personal Lord and Savior. Amen. Why don't you guys welcome them? We are so very glad that you are here today celebrating Christmas with us here in July. It's been a good morning. There's all sorts of wonderful things for you as you walk out. That's going to be great. Glad that you're here. I'm going to remind you about Jesus prom, and I'm not going to make you feel guilty. I'm just going to remind you that Doc made you feel guilty, and you need to do something about it, all right? And so make sure you guys follow up with that. We need all the help that we can get. This Friday, we're having a block party right back out uh, some people call it a pavilion. It's not. It's a party shed, all right? And so at the party shed behind us, Friday night, 6 to 8 p.m., we'll have food, opportunity to just kind of hang out, if, especially for those of you who are just kind of getting connected to the church. It'd be a great thing for you to come and, and be a part of just to meet more people uh, and, and get those roots, roots in a little bit deeper. And then we want to remind you of this. This month's nudge was our shoe drive that we're doing. This is shoes that we're raising, trying to help turn bare feet into learning feet, uh, trying to take care of the kids in our community as they get ready for school. If you bought shoes, but you forgot to bring them in, or maybe you haven't got to that yet, we wanna let you know that this Wednesday is the last day that you can do it. We're, we're actually taking them in Wednesday. So if you have shoes that you wanna be able to, to bring in and help to participate with that nudge to, to help those in our community, make sure you have it in by Wednesday, all right? That's important, okay. Next week, we're continuing our staycations. We're gonna have ice cream next week. And I've been told that the expectation now, remember a couple weeks ago I talked about that fro-yo and the whole thing, right? All right, so we're gonna be having like a whole ice cream buffet, I, apparently, is what we're working towards here. And they will not weigh it at the end, all right? And so. <laughs> So that's our gift to you. Make sure you're here next week. For now, though, you got to leave.